You are listening to the Life Community Church Sermon Podcast. Life Community is a church for the city, making much about the name of Christ. This podcast is available through all major platforms, including Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts. If you enjoy and are challenged by our teaching, we invite you to subscribe to the channel on whatever platform you choose as we seek to anchor ourselves to the unchanging truth of God's Word together. Thanks for listening. scripture this week. You know, last week I obviously wasn't here. I'm thankful for Gavin and David of just walking through the text here faithfully. Uh, We were in Gatlinburg for our annual trip with our college friends. Uh, This is like either year number 12 or 13 that we've vacationed together. It started out uh, as a group of 10, five couples. Today we're at 21. We've added 11 children. Pretty much we've added the Ashelman household into our Fellowship, uh, and so it's like it's it's a lot of noise, right? And I get that big big families. Uh, you're not having any sympathy for me right now. That when I say well, eleven kids is a lot of noise. Before we went, we learned something pretty cool. Our friends had secured for all of us free tickets to the amusement park called Dollywood. And many of you might be familiar with that. Uh, we, we, we knew it beforehand. And so I was able to sit one breakfast with the girls and show them all the rides. And my Ellie, like very early, saw the bumper cars. Like Dollywood calls them the demolition derby. And like that's, that, she was latched onto it. She wanted to ride that. And from what I read in that website, she website, she was able to do the bumper cars. Now, we had gone to an amusement park years prior. Ellie was not able to ride the majority of the rides, and so she was thrilled that this was going to be the year that she finally was grown up, that she was big enough to ride the bumper cars. And so I'm not telling you the story because things ended well. I'm telling you the story because there's a sad twist. Because when we got in line for the demolition derby, then and only then did we learn that, yes, Ellie was capable of riding the bumper cars, but she was not allowed to drive the bumper cars. And I don't think that I need to tell you what happened after learning this information besides to tell you that there was no joy in Dollywood on that day, right? (laughs) Ellie, in her grief, revealed her desire to be just a little bit more grown up. Maybe you remember as a kid that desire to grow up. Maybe for you, it was looking forward to getting your driver's license. Or if you're a newer generation, maybe it was moving out of the booster seat in the back to the passenger seat up front in the car. Or maybe it was riding an amusement park ride. For me, uh, when I was growing up, I always marked uh, being a grown-up by being able to carry a 24-pack of Coke. I don't know why. I would help my mom, and I just remember trying when I was really young to lift that thing up and who can lift this thing up and I remember thinking that I'll be a grown-up when I'm able to lift up a 24-pack of pop and then I did and I didn't even I didn't it didn't dawn on me that I had done it then we all have this innate desire to grow up and in fact I think it carries with us even as we are adult it still lives on in us in fact we might consider it a tragedy of sorts if we are unable to grow up 
uh, to grow up physically because of some disease or to grow up social or emotionally and mentally because of some traumatic experience or to grow up socially because we're not given the opportunity to do so. Growing up is so important to us. It's vital to us. It's so enjoyable to us that anyone who's deprived of that ability is seen as enduring a tragedy. But fewer people are aware of an even greater tragedy, one that the author of Hebrews 5 educates us on today. The tragedy of those who profess faith in Jesus Christ, not maturing, not growing up into the faith, remaining spiritual babes. And so it is vital for us today to understand the necessity and the joy of maturation in Christ. And so let us let the word of God push on us in ways that aren't condemnation, but make us uncomfortable, that we might heed its word and learn and obey it. Because virtually everything in our lives is dependent not on our physical growth, but on our spiritual growth. And so let's jump in our text today, starting in verse 11. The author writes this. About this, we have much to say. And it's hard to explain, since you've become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by the constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Let's pray. So, Father, we praise you today that you've drawn us here that you've brought us into this room, whether we know it or not. Father, we praise you for drawing our hearts to you. Jesus, we praise you today for your sacrifice and your atonement, that we have forgiveness in our sins because of your sacrifice. Thank you for your grace, Jesus. In spirit, we pray to you today, and we ask that you come alongside of us and that you make these words living and active in our hearts, that you might help us learn to love Jesus and to learn that we are greatly loved through the Son. And so we pray this in the beautiful, name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. So maybe you've had a moment like this author where you knew something so deeply and you wanted to explain it to people, but you realized that the people you were talking to, no matter how practical or how simple you made it, they were never going to understand what you were saying. And so there is a sense within these pages that our author wants to expand on the joy of understanding Jesus as our great high priest. He wants to push deeper into the role that Jesus plays as our sinless, sympathizing, perfect high priest who represents all of humankind in front of a holy God. He wants to paint a bigger and brighter and clearer picture that there has never ever been anyone like Jesus. And he wants them to know this for their joy. But he is limited by his audience's ability to hear. Now, that may cause some panicked 
introspection within our own hearts as we realize, yikes, like this guy's frustrated and he's frustrated with a group of people who don't know more about Jesus as the great high priest. Wow, I, I don't know anything at all about Jesus as the high priest. And so what I want you to note is that the author's frustration does not revolve around his audience's lack in, of ability to understand. He's not critiquing their intelligence. Understand that. He's not critiquing their intelligence. Jesus, we remember, turned everything on its head. Jesus threw out status and position and wealth and power, and he went to the fringes of society, and he found the meek, and he found the poor in spirit, and he said, these are the ones that will enter into my kingdom. This isn't about being smart. That's not what is being valued here. The author's frustration is that they lack even the desire to know who God is. He says they're dull of hearing. What he is essentially saying is they're lazy. It's not that they can't understand. It's that they don't want to understand. And so obviously, this audience was the first century church in around the area of Rome they would have been comprised mostly of those with deep, rich Jewish heritage. And so when the author introduces the idea of the great high priest, they would have known what that term meant, its roles and its necessities. They would have been able to connect the dots to Jesus a lot less laboriously than you and I might be able to. They just refused to. So it would be like this in this day. If somebody said to you, now this doesn't make any theological sense whatsoever, so don't hold this in any position. But if somebody came to you and said that Jesus is the great high president, you would know from your experience within this culture what a role of a president and its responsibility were to be. And so it might be easier for you to connect the dots of Jesus being a great high president than somebody who might live in what, Madagascar. The problem isn't understanding, the problem is different, but their problem is also our problem. Their problem is they're not listening. They're not listening to the word of God. They, they don't hear it, they've tuned it out. It's not that they've lacked in opportunities to hear the word of God. They've had many opportunities. They just don't see it as urgent or vital or necessary. And look, it is easy for us to get into that same position. Our scripture here in Hebrews have talked to us about drifting. And what we've learned about drifting is that it doesn't take any human effort to drift. We don't have to do anything. The current of this world leads us away from God. All we have to do is do nothing. So what that means is that we are either growing in knowledge and love and faith in Christ or we're falling away. We cannot say the same. We are either growing or we're falling away. One of the most grievous things in this season of my life is watching some really close friends fall away from faith. And I can tell you, it is obvious to me, the friends of mine who have studied and listened to the word of God consistently, you can see it in their actions and in their life. We must listen to the word of God. We must know it. 
I love what Jen Wilkins writes in one of her books. She says this, that the heart cannot love what the mind does not know. The heart cannot love what the mind cannot know. If we want to feel deeply about God, we must learn to think deeply about God. We must make a study of our God, what he loves and what he hates and how he speaks and acts. We cannot imitate a God whose features and habits we have never learned. We must make a study of him if we want to become like him. We must seek his face. Laziness is more than passivity. Laziness is an outright denial of our very purpose and design. We were made to know and love and enjoy God all the days of our life. By being passive, by being lazy, we cut ourselves off from our true source of joy and flourishing and wisdom. We must know and love God. It's our primary purpose. And then in verse 12, this author says that they, his audience, you should be at a place where you ought to be able to teach others about this. Now, he's not saying to this crowd, like, hey, look, you should be in professional ministry by now. That you should be teaching people from stages, orating on the truths of God. That's not his intent here. He's talking about one who has been so studious in learning that they are now able to instruct others in the ways and the truths of God. Now, there are people who are way smarter than I am that have talked about different stages of learning. They, they say there are at least four stages of learning. The first one is to be unconscious incompetence. And that simply means that, that, you, that we don't know what we don't know. We're not aware of what we should be aware of. It would be like the moment before you are at the Grand Canyon and you see that massive hole in the earth and you are overwhelmed by beauty and splendor. It's breathtaking. You would have never known before that moment that some hole in the ground could overtake you in such capacity. You didn't know. The second stage is called conscious incompetency. It means that you now know what you didn't know. You're aware of what you were once unaware of, or you're now aware that what you were doing was the wrong way, or it was bad. The third stage is called conscience competency. And this is where we begin to work on what we once didn't know. This is the stage where somebody might say, oh, practice makes perfect. We, by effort, we build our understandings and abilities. We, we might do repetitive things like dribble a basketball and not look or rehearse a song so we know its melodies and its flow, or we would read our word and pray. We seek to do repetitive things so we build up our skill in those areas. And then the last stage of learning is called unconscious competency. Those are hard words for me to say. In this stage, we no longer have to think about what we know. It's automatic. It's instinctual. There was a, stay, a day for many of you that you were taught how to drive. But today you jump into your car seat and you just take off. Nobody has to tell you anymore. You know it so thoroughly, what could you do? You actually could teach somebody how to do it. You have attained a level of mastery in that skill. That is the implications of what the author of Hebrews 5 is saying. Not that we would be public teachers like someone like me, but that we have learned the basics of God so 
profoundly, so thoroughly, that we would be unconscious competent about it. That we would be able to instinctually know God's truth in our lives and that we would actually be able to instruct others new to the faith, instruct our children, instruct the next generation, our neighbors, people in our communities on the works and the wonder and the glory of God. That's what he's calling us to. And it's not just the author's expectation of this little church. It's not, all right, you guys are, are pretty special. You, you, you've shown potential. You should be teachers by now. No, it's not just the expectation for this little church. It is Jesus's expectation for every one of his disciples that we would know the works and the wonders of Christ, that we would know and tell others of what he did and who he is. We remember the Great Commission in Matthew chapter 18 or 28 where Jesus says these very words, right? Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. And so if we have confessed Christ, it means that we have trusted in his death and his resurrection and we have given up our own lives We have given up our own lives because Jesus was our ransom for sin. We have then died with him. We have died with Christ. We have been purchased by his blood. We are not our own. We belong to God. But it also means that we have been raised to new life with him. That we don't live this life for ourselves anymore, but we live it through and by the glorified and risen Savior. Therefore, As disciples, we live in this world to image the God that redeemed us into the world, into our family, into our work, into our habits, into our families, into our habits and opinions. And we can't do that if we're not growing. And we can't grow if we're not listening. Listen to verses 12 and 13 here. He says, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness. Interesting phrase. Since he is a child. So milk is not a derogatory phrase here. Milk is vitally important. I think it's helpful for us to understand this idea of milk and solid food through the lens of what it means to grow up as a human. We know that we need milk, that the the milk of a mother to a newborn is necessary for providing nurturing and uh, support and health. We need milk in those early formative years to become strong, to build a foundation for good health and productivity in our lives. Milk creates that long-lasting foundation. We can't thrive without it. But there is a point in which that milk becomes detrimental. If you were to walk over to your neighbor's house and you saw your 30-year-old neighbor mechanic nursing from his mother's teat, that's a problem, right? You're in counseling from that moment. That's a big deal. You're not getting over that. Milk is foundational, but it's to be built upon. 
It's not the only thing we consume. Because if we're still drinking mama's milk, what does it mean? It means something's gone wrong. It means that we're not growing. And so I think it's important that we ask the question, well, what is he talking about when he's talking about milk? What, what does milk mean here? Now, certainly I don't believe that I can get in the author's mind and fully understand what he's talking about here, but he does give us some clues. First, he talks about the, that it being the basic principles of the oracles of God. And then secondly, he mentions this phrase, the word of righteousness. Now, righteousness, righteousness is our right standing, our moral standing in front of a holy God. But it is also living rightly in front of others. And so these two phrases, I think, come together to make us understand what milk is. And so we ask the questions, what is the basic principle of righteousness? What are the basic principles of what it means to be righteous? And, and so foundationally, Righteousness has everything to do with our attitude towards ourself and our attitude towards God. That we understand that we're broken, like we're fallen, that we are radically sinful in every single way, that we're unable to earn our salvation, that we're unable to flourish in this life because we are without wholeness. We are lacking a relationship with the very God that designed us. Righteousness starts with knowing what we are not and what we are and being humbled by it, but also being serious about the sin in our life and understanding how offensive our sin is to a holy God who made us and loved us and then walked us walk away. That in choosing ourselves, we have rejected our Savior and we must be repentant of our sin. But it also means that we have the right attitude towards God, that we honor him and love him and revere him because of what he has done and who he is, but also in understanding the depths of his love for us. That we understand that God knows us, that he sees us. Everything hidden, God knows. And what we hear in scripture is this, is that God even loves us. And we are moved by that love. And we are given a righteousness by a gift of grace. We're given righteousness. Our righteousness is actually Jesus' righteousness. And so those are the basic principles of righteousness. That is milk. And look, milk is some good stuff. This is good. But just like a 30-year-old toddler who is only consuming milk, there's a problem. Now, why is there a problem? Because I'm telling you, that's some good stuff. Why is there a problem? Well, I want you to think of it this way. If all we are consuming is milk, it means that we never truly believed it in the first place. We never truly believed it in the first place. We're still wrestling with our own rightness. We're still trusting in our own selves. We're still choosing ourselves. We are struggling with our efforts and believing that we can somehow earn our salvation as if Jesus, his death and his resurrection got us 83% of the way to salvation and we've got to fill in the gap. I hope I do enough. You can't do enough. 
That's the point. That's the, the whole point of the gospel. To be on milk means that we're still unserious about our sin. We're still unserious about its destruction and the harm that it brings in our life. But it means that we also are struggling to comprehend the love that God has for us. It means that we're searching for a feeling. We not, we not only want God to prove his love for us, which he did by dying on the cross for us, but we want him to make us feel better about his love. We want, us, we want, we want him to kiss our boo-boos instead of trusting my faith in the resurrected Christ and his truth. If all we are consuming is milk, it means that we've never grown up. We're unskilled and we have no rest. We have no rest. How can you have rest in your life if all you're doing is considering those things? There's no rest. We're still a baby. And as spiritual babies, you can't be trusted. Spiritual babies have no defense for the world and its tactics. I want you to listen to what Paul wrote to the early church in Ephesus. In Ephesians 4, he says, so that we may no longer be what? Children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by, every, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. Like, do you get the idea here? We have to move on from milk. And look, it's all of our responsibility as the people of God to encourage one another to do that. Why? Because spiritual babies wreak havoc in the church. Spiritual babies create division in the church. Spiritual babies act like babies. They fuss over little things and they throw tantrums. And if they don't get what they want, they leave and they throw fits as they leave. Spiritual babies focus on trendy things and being entertained by God through others. Rather than listening and heeding the word of God and being faithful to it. We need to be skilled in the word of righteousness to have a firm foundation to build on. Are we listening? Are we listening? Paul, to the Corinthians, in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 says, when I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. Now that's not sexist, all right? This isn't Paul saying, I shot a deer, now I'm a man. What he is saying is because all I want is the living Savior who loved me and died for me, I'm giving everything else up. And that is a call for both men and women to put away our childish pursuits. And listen how this text ends. Verse 14, but solid food is for the mature. For those who have their, dis their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. So what is solid food? Solid food's for the mature who through maturity are developing the powers to discern and distinguish between good and evil. And so how do we 
learn or gain the power to discern. It's through knowing godly wisdom that first comes from knowing and growing in our understanding of doctrine in the love of Christ. Growing in our knowledge of who God is and what he is like and what he has done for us and what he wants for us. And then we take that knowledge, that doctrine, and we bring it into the real world. To be a discerning people means that we first must be a learning people. And so think about it this way. What proceeds and determines your activity in life? What is it? Thoughts. Your thoughts proceed and determine your activity and your behavior. If you think that you can change your behavior without first changing the way that you think, you need a wake-up call. There is a clear call within our scripture to renew our minds, to take every thought captive, to test everything that we might hold on only to that which is good. God knows that there's an extensive battle being warred in our minds and within our hearts. He wants us to know him so thoroughly that it affects the way that we live. And here's the good news, friends. He has not left us alone. He has given us a spirit to bring his truths alive into our hearts. We must strive then to become, through the spirit, unconscious competent, as we just learned, meaning that we have so thoroughly listened and explored the word of God that we begin to act on instinct through the practice of discerning what is good and evil. The more we know about God, the more we understand God, the better we are at discerning the goodness or badness of the trials and the temptations and the people and the opportunities that come our way. Can you imagine what it would be like to live instinctually knowing what God wants for us? what it would be like for the word and the spirit to permeate our hearts and our minds that all we do is react from his love and his truth. Can you, can you imagine the rest and the peace that you would have? Can you imagine that all of the situations and people and circumstances your way wouldn't be able to shake you they wouldn't affect your worldview instead of living a life where everything around us causes us strife in the inside. What a hope to have. And so I think that Eugene Peterson reminds us uh, in one of his books that this isn't, this isn't a quick process. Peterson says it's a long obedience in the same direction. That knowing God is about consistency, habit, desire to know the Lord. Uh, Randy Alcorn says it this way. He says, the time I spend with God determines both the direction and the quality of time I spend elsewhere. I'll read that again. The time I spend with God determines both direction and the quality of the time that I spend elsewhere. We're reminded in scripture, in 1 Timothy, it says this, that all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in what? Righteousness. That the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. Friend, let us not be lazy. 
Let us not be dull of hearing. Some of you in here, the moment that I read this text, knew that you needed to grow up. Some of us have spent years sipping on milk and striving and living and thriving only on Christian cliche and over-spiritualizations of different aspects of our life. We have to grow up. Some of us have seen the value of our Christian faith connected to what God can give to us, what God can bring to me and how God can make me feel. I want you to realize that as leadership of this church, we have for some time been very deliberately deliberate about equipping this church through the study of the word to embrace and thrive in a day when being a follower of Jesus will no longer be celebrated or tolerated within this society. And look, I don't know when that day arrives. Don't ask me. I'm not going to speculate. But I don't know if it's too long. Which means that there will be a day, and I've said this before, where being a Christian will cost you far more than you could ever imagine. That those who identify as the people of God will be known in only the undercurrent, but will not be pervasive within the culture. And so listen, if your Christianity is built on anything less than the word of God being true, if your confession is anything less than we are not our own, but we belong body, mind, and spirit to a loving God, you will in the future behave like a child and you will seek comfort and love from something other than Christ in his church. We have to grow up. The world needs us. Our communities need us. We must beat our own minds and spirits into submission to desire to know him more. We must be active in our prayer even when we don't feel like that God would make us love him and his word more. And again, this isn't about intellect. This isn't about your knowledge. This isn't about how smart you are. It's about desire. It's about listening. It's about coming under the submission of the word of God and listening for our joy and for his glory. St. Augustine said something incredible, and I love it. He said, the Bible is shallow enough for a child not to drown, yet deep enough for an elephant to swim. Isn't that fantastic? We have a living word of God that is relatable to every person in every season of our lives. You can read the word at every level and know something more about God. There's no excuse for us. It is about our desire. And so, friends, I say this. Can we, through the grace of God and the forgiveness of God, be curious about ourselves? Can we be curious about ourselves a little bit and ask ourselves, why do I do the things that I do? And why am I not doing the things that I ought to be doing? And let us not move into shame in our lacking, in our childish, but because of, the, of our experience and knowledge of God's love for us, we understand that God's love and grace still finds us there. Often, and this is true of my life, we are embarrassed at not doing the things that we ought to be doing in our rhythms with God. And in our embarrassment, we find shame. And that shame keeps us hidden and stuck. Friends, do not be embarrassed. Do not be shamed. Let the grace and the love of God and the new mercies that come to us every morning be the grease that quicken our confession to admit that we are prone to wonder, that we're prone to leave the God that we love, that we're prone to do the things that we want to do. 
that we're prone to not take his word seriously, to not take our sin seriously, and to not love and enjoy him in our life. And listen, let us do that one another. Because alone, alone, we have fallen away. But it is only together that we will grow again. We need each other. And the hardest thing to do is confess something that we've been most embarrassed about. But I'm telling you, friend, find somebody in your life that you know loves the Lord and you tell them what's going on in your life and you will learn what it means to know a God that fully knows you and fully delights in you. Let us ask ourselves, am I on milk? Am I learning? Am I listening? Or I've tuned out God and his word. Challenge for us this week as we move forward.